In his book titled The Sin of Certainty, Peter Enns asserts, and I chose that word deliberately, Peter Enns asserts that Christians' claims about God and doctrines are arrogant and create obstacles to people embracing God's love. According to Enns, we need to let go of our need to have knowledge of God and embrace that we only have culturally and experientially shaped beliefs about God. We should stop making claims about who God is and what he expects. Humans should be allowed to encounter God on their own terms. And while most people don't write books about it, Inns' claims about God and Christianity are not unique. His book is not a, a paradigm shift for much of our society. Many people believe that a relationship with God is purely personal and individualistically defined. God meets them on their terms. My truth is my truth, your truth is your truth, and any attempt to impose your truth on my truth is really the only sin left in our culture. And that may be where you're at this morning. You may have read and listened to our church's statement of faith and been bothered by our certainty about who God is and what he expects. A little over a decade ago, I would have been put off by the, the arrogance of our statement of faith that I now happily and wholeheartedly affirm and that I ask to be included in our worship service this morning. I would have thought, what right do these people have to define God for everybody else, to define God for me? Maybe you're asking those questions. Maybe you're a teenager and you're tired of your parents trying to force their beliefs on you. Maybe you're a Christian whose faith is being challenged by a coworker, a family member, or even your own doubts. Maybe you're a non-Christian and you're troubled by our dogmatism. Maybe even now you're silently asking the question, well, what happened to your doubts, John Ellis? Why are you now able to wholeheartedly affirm this church's statement of faith? Well, the short answer is, by the grace of God. The longer answer is something that we'll be looking at this morning. Lord willing, over the course of several months, I'm going to be preaching through 2 Peter. In the book, which is a letter, Peter is encouraging believers to pursue and to rest in the knowledge of God that has been given to them by God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to faithfully pursue godliness, virtuous moral living as defined by God. And one of the things that becomes evident when reading 2 Peter is that Peter has been prompted to write the letter because of the confusion and discord being sown by, by false teachers about who God is and what he expects. So in a nutshell, 2 Peter refutes our postmodern belief that true knowledge of God is inaccessible and that any claims to it are, are culturally arrogant and demeaning of other people's experiences and beliefs. Second Peter pushes back on any claims that deny that followers of Jesus can know with assurance who God is and what he expects from his children, what living godly lives looks like. This morning we're planning on looking at the first 11 verses of Second Peter. So if you haven't already done so, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, which can be found on page 1018 in the Bibles provided in the pews. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11, page 1018. And please follow along as I read. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. God's grace, God's sovereignty, and God's expectations. First, God's grace. This short book opens with a typical greeting found in ancient letters. And, and there's a lot packed in these first two verses. In fact, if I could go back in time, which I've been assured by the physicists and engineers in this room is not possible. I'll have to take their word for it. If I could go back in time, I think I would begin the series preaching just verses 1 and 2. But in God's providence, here we are, and so bear with me as I try to unpack as many of the gospel riches found in these two verses as I can. For starters, look at who wrote the book. Peter, of course, wrote 2 Peter. And most conservative scholars believe that he wrote the letter while in Rome, sitting in prison waiting to be martyred by Nero for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the onset, Peter reminds us that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Being one of the original 12 disciples, Peter followed Jesus closely, being instructed by Jesus, expressing his own thoughts to Jesus, sometimes when he should have kept his mouth shut, observing Jesus. And if anyone has a right to speak and make claims about Jesus, it, it's Peter. Now with that in mind, skip to the last six words of verse 1. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to the middle of the verse, but first notice what Peter claims about Jesus. Not only is he our Savior, Jesus is also God. Without any equivocation, Peter clearly says that Jesus is God. If you're skeptical of Peter's claim that Jesus is God, what did Peter get from it? He was violently martyred, crucified upside down. For believing and preaching that Jesus is God, Peter suffered a gruesome death. Why would Peter, of all people, a man who was not only one of the 12 disciples, but was also one of the three that made up Jesus' inner circle, be willing to die over his claim that Jesus is God. If Jesus wasn't God, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, if he and the other early Christians were making it up, what did Peter gain by stubbornly clinging to the very thing that got him killed? If Peter and the other disciples knew that they had made it up, that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, they would have dropped the ruse the second the authorities began sharpening the executioner's axe. Yet here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, sitting in prison, facing his own death over this claim, is still boldly asserting that Jesus is God. Friend, if, if your belief about Jesus is simply that he was a moral teacher and a wonderful example, please continue listening. Because Peter ends verse 2 with the statement, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The things that Peter writes about Jesus apply to God too. And if you reject Peter's claims about Jesus, you are rejecting God and you will forfeit your access to the grace and peace that Peter writes about. And what is the root that produces the fruit of grace and peace? Go back up to verse 1, specifically to that middle section. 
to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we dive into this very rich statement, let's recall Peter's past. I mean, he's claiming faith and calls himself an apostle. Yet isn't this the same guy that profanely denied Jesus? After Peter had already openly denied Jesus twice, Mark 14, verses 70 and 71 tell us, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter vehemently denied Jesus, and yet here we are in 2 Peter. What happened? Well, the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ is what happened. Throughout the Bible, the, the phrase righteousness of God most often refers to God's actions to save sinners. It's what God does to provide a way to restore the relationship with his children. We see this in several Old Testament passages. And I'm not going to have you turn to them, but I encourage you to write them down so that you can reflect on them later. And, and there are many more throughout the Old Testament. So Psalm 22, verse 31. They shall come and proclaim God's righteousness to a people yet unborn. Psalm 31, verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Isaiah 51, 5 and 8. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. Verse 8. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Throughout the New Testament, specifically in Paul's writing, we see the righteousness of God referring to God's saving action through Jesus Christ. For example, Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. Whom, speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith, then, is a product of God's gracious saving action. And 2 Peter 2.1 makes that clear because the final clause modifies the word obtained in verse 1. So we could rightfully render the verse to those who have obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ a faith of equal standing with ours. It is God's gracious saving action that reconciles sinners to himself. In his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which we have in the book nook if you're interested, John Bunyan recounts how there was a time when he believed that he had denied Jesus so deeply in his soul that he was outside of the reach of God's grace. As he agonized over that thought, doubting that he was even able to be counted a Christian, his mind would often land on Peter. And it would comfort him knowing that Peter's public denial of Jesus didn't remove Peter from the reach of God's grace. And that same thought should, should lodge itself into the minds of the readers of 2 Peter. He's writing to people who are struggling in their faith. They're being preyed upon by false teachers. Doubt has crept in. Wrong views of God have infected their thinking. Yet Peter opens his letter claiming that his audience has obtained a faith of equal standing to his and the other apostles. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are hurting, if you are feeling far from your Savior and are weighed down by doubts and fears, Rest in God's grace. Through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, you have a faith equal to that of Peter. Your Father loves you, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even your doubts and fears. So cling to Jesus. Pour your doubts and fears onto him. 
He'll carry them for you. And sinner, you are not outside of the reach of God's grace. But you do need to recognize that according to our text, salvation is not obtainable apart from God's righteousness. Peter closes his greeting by writing, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter doesn't allow his readers to simply sit still in their doubts, though. He asserts that growing in grace and peace is a product of growing in the knowledge of God. And and notice that that our emotions and experiences are not separated from the intellect here in verse 2. God is sovereign over both heart and head. And so if you're seeking grace and peace apart from the knowledge of God, recognize that 2 Peter doesn't allow room for that. Theologian Thomas Schreiner writes, Grace and peace abound when believers know more about God. Lord willing, in September, we'll be looking at the end of 2 Peter. And the book closes where it begins, with grace and knowledge. These are inseparable themes of this short letter. And moving out of this greeting, Peter is going to encourage followers of Jesus to allow a growing knowledge of God to produce fruit for God's glory. And that brings us to our second point, God's sovereignty. Please follow along as I read verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I don't know about you, but the first thing that that jumps out to me about these verses is that any of the parts about us are tightly bracketed by God. His divine power has granted through the knowledge of him, his own glory and excellence. He has granted his precious and very great promises and, and sprinkled throughout, granted to us, called us, granted to us. Even the verbs and the phrases about us point back to God. And that means that the second thing that jumps out to me is the realization that, okay, wait a minute, whatever and however these verses apply to me, to you, to all of us, we're not controlling any of this. None of this is dependent on us. When I was a kid, my my parents had a large station wagon, the kind with the seat in the very rear that faced backwards. That's where my brother and I sat. And that's us, turning my childhood travel arrangements into a metaphor. Those of us who are repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus, we're sitting in the back, completely and utterly dependent on the driver of the station wagon. When I was a kid, there was a popular bumper sticker that said, God is my co-pilot. That's blasphemous. God grants us all things that pertain to life. He reveals himself to us, providing us knowledge of him. He called us, and he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So so looking back at the text, one of the things that these verses tell us about God is that God is sovereign over everything. And and God is sovereign over everything. Because he informs Job in Job 41.11, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. As the sovereign over everything... God's only accessible insofar as he deigns to make himself accessible. And praise God, he makes himself accessible. He reveals to us who he is. He gives us knowledge of himself. And and this is an important point because these two verses swing on the last half of verse 3. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In fact, as, as, as Douglas Moo points out, for Peter, growing in knowledge of our God and Savior Jesus Christ is a key idea in this letter. But how do we obtain this knowledge? How does God reveal himself to us? 
Well, for starters, we need to grasp the nuances of the word. Our English word knowledge has multiple nuances depending on context. For example, the statements, I know all the state's capitals and I know my daughter, use no in overlapping yet different ways. The claim about the state's capitals, which used to be true, but that was when I was in fourth grade, so don't quiz me afterwards, um, refers solely to cognitive knowledge, intellectual knowledge, head knowledge, if you will. Um, the second claim includes cognitive knowledge, head knowledge. I know things about my daughter. I know her age, her favorite book, etc. But my knowledge of my daughter is much, much more than intellectual. I know her as a loving father knows his daughter. In other words, my knowledge of my daughter includes cognitive knowledge, but is, at its core, a relational knowledge. And to help us set up our transition back to the te text, if you were to ask me questions about my daughter, things like her age, her favorite book, etc., and I got the answers wrong, you would conclude, I, I don't think John really knows his daughter very well. Relational knowledge cannot be divorced from cognitive knowledge, from intellectual knowledge. In, in our text, the Greek word that's translated knowledge means an intimate and informed relationship. And that knowledge is a product of conversion. The words knowledge of him who called us there in verse 3 is a package deal. As one commentary states, this calling is an act by which God brings people into a relationship with himself. Knowledge of God, true, deep, lasting knowledge of God is dependent on God saving us. Does this mean that non-Christians are unable to have knowledge of God? Well, that depends on how the word is being used. If we're using it in the I know the state's capital sense, then yes, unbelievers can have knowledge of God. This morning, we're being confronted with some facts about God. Jesus is God. God is sovereign. God determines the path to salvation, to being reconciled to him. And Lord willing, we're going to be confronted with some more as we work our way through the rest of the text. But owning that knowledge, being able to say, I know facts about God, is a far cry from saying, I know God. And the difference in those two uses of knowledge is as wide as the gulf between heaven and hell. For those of us who know God, in the sense embedded in Peter's words, we have been granted his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. If you read the Bible, and you should read the Bible, one of the first things you learn, one of the first pieces of knowledge you're given is that God created everything. And in the beginning, the world was uncorrupted. Tragically, though, you'll also quickly learn, you'll be given knowledge, that the first humans, Adam and Eve, in an alliance with the serpent Satan, rebelled against God and decided that they wanted to rule in place of God. That rebellion, called sin, brought corruption into the world. Corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 4. So another piece of knowledge that God reveals to us is that sin destroys everything, including our relationship with God. Our desires are at odds with God. We are born in rebellion and sin, and we are trapped in corruption. And corruption leads to death. That's something else that the Bible reveals to us about God. Because he is holy, without sin, and of necessity eternally separated from sin, human rebellion brings with it the just sentence of eternal death. Death is the ultimate corruption. However, and mercifully, right after the sinful rebellion of humans that drug God's good world into corruption, God issues a promise. In Genesis 3.15, God promises to send someone who will crush the head of the serpent Satan. If you continue reading the Bible, you'll find that God issues many promises. He promises to bless his people and to, to make them into a great nation. 
Extending that promise, he promises to bless the entire world through his people. He promises to provide his people a land that is good, pointing back to his good creation that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden, but also that points forward to a good creation that will never have to endure corruption and death. I think that every time I've stepped into this pulpit to preach, I've said this, and I'm not going to stop. Read the Bible as one story. Don't just study it. Read it. And, and those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You can study it and read it. Start in Genesis and read how God created the world good and how humans shattered that goodness, ushering corruption and death into the world. Read God's promise to restore not only his creation, but also his relationship with his children. And then pay attention as you read God's rolling revelation of what his promises look like until you get to Matthew 1 and the section titled The Genealogy of Christ. Because at verse 16 of chapter 1, when Matthew quietly introduces Jesus, the whole tone of the Bible changes. You know why that tone changes? And if you read the Bible as one story, trust me, you'll feel that shift in tone. Well, that tone changes because the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 is here. Our day of salvation has arrived. No longer do we look forward and long for God to send the promised seed. God himself, as Peter points out at the end of verse 1, is the promised seed. Christian, we have nothing to fear. God himself came down from heaven to save us from our sins. Have you ever read the Bible like that? Because if you do, when you get to 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, you'll understand what Peter means when he writes that we've been granted the great promises of God. If you read the Bible as one story, as God's story, when you get to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, you'll pull all of God's great promises into the text. And then you'll drop to your knees in praise of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all of God's glorious promises. When Peter writes, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, he means that through the righteousness of God, the salvation won by Jesus Christ, we've been given life. We've escaped the corruption deserved by sin, and we are co-heirs with Jesus. Because as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of God's promises are yes in Christ. Not some, all. Every single one of them. But unbeliever, non-Christian, what about you? I want to speak specifically to you for a moment. Looking at these first four verses of 2 Peter, can you honestly say that you can lay claim to the promises of God? I mean, as we saw with the word knowledge, without a relationship with Jesus, these verses don't apply to you. I realize that may sound harsh, but that conclusion is based on the text. So what are you to do? Because here's the thing. If you remain in your rebellion against God, your sin, your refusal to accept God on his terms, what pertains to you will be the polar opposite of life and godliness. Non-Christian, whatever your concept about God is, having life and being connected to God sounds like a positive thing. That's undeniable. In fact, you may be saying, I, I want that. I want to claim that promise for myself. And frankly, most people do want to claim that promise for themselves. Sadly, though, many want to place conditions on God as they attempt to claim his promise. Except that promise is conditioned on the clause that immediately follows, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We don't get to set the terms on which we have a relationship with God. And that's bad news if you haven't submitted to God's righteousness, to his way of salvation. And if you're refusing to submit to God, Romans 6.23 reveals that what pertains to you is death, not life. For the wages of sin, rebellion against God, is death. However, life and godliness can be yours because of the end of verse 3. 
That preposition to in the ESV is better translated by or through. So, for example, if you have an NIV, it reads, who called us by his own glory and goodness. So please turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. And that can be found on page 1014 of the Bibles provided in the pews, just a, just a few pages back. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, page 1014. Please follow along as I read. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The glory of Jesus, this, this glory in verse 3 of our text is connected to his resurrection. Okay, so, so what does that mean? Well, well, God's salvation can't be accomplished by him simply saying, all right, fine, I, I forgive your sin. An extraordinary act of redemption had to take place. God couldn't simply overlook sin. To be in a right relationship with him requires obedience, which is another way of saying sinlessness or holiness. Remember how I mentioned God's promise to send someone to crush the head of the serpent, Satan? Well, that someone who the story of the Bible reveals is God himself, Jesus, did that through a life of perfect obedience, ending in a gruesome death on the cross, taking the punishment for the sins of his people. Three days after his death, Jesus was raised in power and glory by the Holy Spirit, defeating sin and death. One day, Jesus will return to finally and fully condemn those who reject him to an eternal punishment in hell. On that same day, he will reward those who are placing their faith in him by ushering them into the new heavens and new earth to enjoy all eternity in God's good place with God's people enjoying God's blessing, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Verse 4. And here's the good news. If you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, the promise of 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 can be yours. By submitting yourself to God through faith in Jesus, his divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. If you have yet to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, please do so. And if you want to know more about what it means to place your faith in Jesus, find me at the, at the back door after the service. I would love nothing more than to talk with you about it. If you don't want to talk to me, this room is filled with people who would love to talk with you about it. But moving on to our third and final point, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11 through 11, reveals an expectation of growing in life and godliness through the knowledge of God, God's expectations. Verse 5 begins, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then Peter lists a series of things. For those who are repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus, you have a faith of equal standing with Peter, which should provide you with great assurance. Also, God has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. His great promises are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And you are escaping the corruption of this world brought about by sin. One day you will enter into God's full and final rest to enjoy God's blessings, God's promises with God's people for all eternity. So, because of that... God has called you to do this, to supplement your faith with this. And the first this is virtue. Before looking at the word virtue, though, I want to explain about the literary device Peter is using. This list of things we are to supplement our faith with are not logically derived from each other. 
In other words, adding virtue does not come with the logical consequence of then adding knowledge and so on and so forth. They're all interconnected, that's true, but each one doesn't logically descend from the previous one. Peter is using a literary device called Sorites that links together virtues in a series. And the order of the virtues is not meant to be a logical sequence. And Peter is employing words that were well known and utilized in the pagan religions that dominated the Roman world at the time. Peter is using the language of the false teachers against them. And for the record, this isn't a comprehensive list of Christian ethics. Also, most scholars list the number of virtues at eight not seven. That numbering means that faith is included in Peter's list of Christian ethics, which I believe is correct. And that's an important point because Peter is directly connecting our responsibilities based on God's expectations for his people with God's sovereignty. Earlier, while, while looking at verse 1, I talked about how faith is a product of God's saving action, his righteousness. God gives us faith. Yet, yet here it is in Peter's list of Christian ethics. In our human limitations, we frequently puzzle over the tension between God's sovereignty and humans' responsibility. Well, if you're now hoping for me to solve that tension, prepare to be disappointed. Because the Bible doesn't acknowledge any tension. We read tension back into the text. The Bible, like here in 2 Peter, simply states that God is sovereign over everything, and that humans have a responsibility to obey God, including repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus. And God expects us to submit to what he's chosen to reveal. Namely, pertaining to, to this sermon, we are to submit to the divine revelation that God is sovereign and we are responsible for, before God for our actions. Now, I'm not saying that we can't have enjoyable and edifying conversations over coffee about our perceived tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. I'm saying that before, during, and after those conversations, by God's grace, we need to submit to what God reveals in the Bible. And the Bible declares that God is completely sovereign and humans are responsible before God for their actions. And if you would like to have an enjoyable and edifying conversation with me over coffee about that or anything else I've said, most of my mornings are available this coming week. I'll even buy the coffee. All right, so Peter says that we are to add virtue to our faith. This echoes James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And, and I'm not going to read that entire passage. So zeroing in on verse 18 of James 2, James writes, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. James is presenting a, a hypothetical argument here. An opponent is challenging James with the idea that faith and works are separated. James then turns back to the reader and responds, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith and virtue are not separable. Here in 2 Peter, we're, we're provided a list of works that provide evidence of our faith, in, including faith. Faith is, an ev is evidence of our faith. Have you ever thought about that? This second item on the list, virtue, is telling us that those who are placing their faith in Jesus should live in accordance with God's own moral character. As I've already stated, Peter isn't providing his readers with a comprehensive list of virtues, of God's ethics. The Bible is God's revelation about himself, including his moral character. Strewn throughout the story of redemption, we see how God defines virtuous. For those who have looked at our statement of faith or our church covenant, and you believe us to be too dogmatic or arrogant in our publicly declared beliefs about God and Christian living, I ask you, 
Are we contradicting the Bible? Because if we are, we need to be confronted about that. But if we're not, you need to confront yourself with the hard truth. All of us here need to make sure that we're reading the Bible with a desire to learn about God and to submit to him on his terms, not our terms. Our terms is a synonym for rebellion. And there's not a single person in this room, including myself, that doesn't read the Bible and tense up from time to time. We all struggle at points to submit to God's word. And that's because we're sinners. By God's grace, though, we repent and pray for the faith to submit and obey, and in doing so, add virtue to our faith. Now, I I don't have the time to unpack everything the Bible has to say about what a virtuous life as defined by God looks like. Thankfully, I don't have to because I'm preaching 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11, and Peter doesn't provide a comprehensive list. So I'm going to limit our discussion to Peter's list. I would encourage you, though, to look at the life of Jesus and his teachings if you want a more comprehensive picture of what God's moral character looks like, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. So Peter doesn't include a comprehensive list because, frankly, that's not his concern. His concern here in verses 7 is explained in verses 8 through 11, which, Lord willing, we'll get to. So so next on Peter's list is knowledge. Considering what we looked at earlier about how Peter uses the word knowledge, this is an interesting inclusion. Woven into a brief description of God's moral character is an intimate and informed relationship with God. Living in a way that reflects God's moral character is not possible apart from knowledge of God. If you think that you can live a life on your own power that's good enough to meet God's standard, you can't. We all have to submit to God through an intimate and informed relationship with Jesus that is a product of God's salvation provided through repentance of our sins and faith in Jesus. However, Peter is now taking the word knowledge and pointing it in a specific direction, namely discerning God's will and living according to his will. Combining that with Peter's overall use of the word, true knowledge of God, being able to discern his will and live according to his will is mediated through a relationship with God. After knowledge, Peter lists self-control. For the writers of the New Testament, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit that allows us to avoid temptation. Paul includes self-control in his list found in Galatians 5. Christian, is your life characterized by giving in to temptation? Because as the children of God, we are to resist temptation. So I, I urge you to cling to the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. The promise of 1 Corinthians 10.13 is predicated on becoming partakers in the divine nature in verse 4 of our text. Through our union with Christ, believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So don't rely on your own strength. During moments of temptation, pursue self-control by praying for the faith and the power of the Holy Spirit to resist and to obey God's expectation of holy living. After self-control, we have steadfastness, or as it could be translated, endurance. God expects us to endure, to keep our eyes on Jesus and thereby faithfully run the race set before us. And endurance is possible because we know that God is bringing us safely home. Are you struggling with endurance? Rehearse Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Don't look at the waves of fear, doubt, suffering, temptation that are crashing around you. And Peter knows what happens when you look at the waves. Keep your eyes on Jesus and rest in God's promise that he is saving you. Thankfully, in Galatians 2.2, we're provided an interesting and practical application of what seeking to endure looks like. So after briefly explaining how he was called by God in Galatians 2, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul provides some of his history as he grew in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Beginning in chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul tells us that almost two decades after his conversion, he went back to Jerusalem and met with the church leaders, namely other apostles. And he did so to make sure that the gospel he was proclaiming was correct. And he ends verse 2 of chapter 2 with a statement that he did this in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. For Paul, one of the means to abide in endurance was to make sure that he was enduring in truth. You want to add steadfastness to your faith? Submit to God's word, both through your daily reading and the faithful preaching of God's word and in prayer. So next we have godliness. We should long for our lives to honor God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we should strive to be someone whose entire existence reflects who God is and points people to Jesus. Do your conversations at work reveal that you desire to be godly? When you're stuck in the absurdity that is DC traffic, do your actions or even your thoughts reveal a desire to be godly? And, and we chuckle at that last one, but do we chuckle at this next one? Does your recently watched list on Netflix reveal that you desire to be godly? Everyone loves sermon applications until you start talking about what they watch on TV. Next is brotherly affection followed by love, and they sound the same but are different. Many of us are familiar with the different words our Bibles translate love. Here, Peter uses the word Philadelphia, which is translated brotherly affection. The, the New Testament writers often use this word to refer to corporate solidarity, unity. Writing to Christians whose unity is being threatened by false teachers Peter's talking about the love that Christians have for fellow Christians that's grounded in our union with Christ, our relationship, our knowledge of Jesus. Jesus said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35. Christians are to love one another, full stop, no exception clauses. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? If so, how do you demonstrate that? I submit to you that simply attending church every Sunday and sitting in the pews with your brothers and sisters in Christ does not fulfill this expectation. And I'm not trying to beat us up on this because frankly, and by God's grace, I am constantly encouraged to hear the, the many ways in which you love one another. Keep it up and, and look for more ways to add to your faith brotherly affection that is rooted in our union with Christ. The word translated love at the end of the list is from the Greek word agape, an all-encompassing love that originates with God and is the love that undergirds and courses through our brotherly affection. They're, they're not separable, like almost everything on this list. All right, so we have this list of virtues that we should add to faith. And Peter explains why in verses 8 through 11. So in verse 11, Peter bluntly says that for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is Peter teaching a work salvation? Well, of course not. Our salvation is solely of grace through faith in Jesus. But the gift of salvation should, will, cause us to place an increasing importance on godliness, on virtuous moral living as defined by God. At the end of the list, in verse 8, 
Peter asserts that those expectations he just listed keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we're brought back to knowledge. Peter is ending where he started. God's grace in providing salvation for his people, his righteousness, produces knowledge, an intimate and informed relationship with Jesus. And living godly increases our knowledge of Jesus, of God. And if you fail to grasp this, if you are failing to add to your faith these things, then, well, you're living a life that is ungodly. And as Peter points out in verse 9, you are so nearsighted as to be blinded. In fact, some scholars believe that here in verse 9, Peter is referring to the same group of people he mentions later in chapter 2, verses 20 and 22, that prove by their life that they have not received the righteousness of God. Jesus' parable of the sower helps us understand this. Jesus tells us that some seed will fall on ground that is filled with rocks or thorns that prevent the seed from taking real root and producing lasting fruit. Some people claim to be Christians, yet, yet later prove through their ungodliness that they have not received a calling and election from God. Now, I want to stress that this list and Peter's explanation for why we should add the things on this list to our faith are not intended to produce anxiousness and doubt and man-centered striving after good works. They're intended to produce in us faith that God is saving us, that he has provided us faith and knowledge of himself, and that that faith causes us to want to pursue God even more, which produces effective and fruitful knowledge of God that produces more godliness, that produces more faith, that produces more godliness, and so on and so on until God brings us safely home one day into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are brothers and sisters in Christ sitting in this room who are struggling. You're hurting and doubting and wondering why your faith is seemingly weak. But some of you in this room who are struggling are an encouragement and blessing to me because I watch you continue to cling to Jesus. I hear your prayer requests. I hear your confession that you long for Jesus, that you long to be made whole. And your fight against your fears and doubts is evidence of God's grace in your life. Do not doubt that, brothers and sisters. Continue to cling to Jesus in faith that his grace is sufficient even when it doesn't feel like it. And allow that truth to cause you to continue to pursue godliness. Because pursuing godliness is evidence, according to verse 10, that you are not falling. Through your faithfulness, even in the midst of doubts and struggles, you are providing testimony that your calling and election is sure. That you are receiving the gift of faith from God. Faith is evidence of faith. However, I would be remiss if I didn't once again point out the warning in all this. If you resist godliness... If you believe that you are allowed to define for yourself what your ethics are, that you get to decide how to live your life, you are running the risk of proving that you have not received a calling and election from God, that you are not placing your faith in Jesus. In Galatians 5.21, Paul warns that those whose lives are dominated by the opposite of godliness prove that they are not God's children and will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's you, repent of your sins. Stop trying to live life on your terms and submit to Jesus Christ through faith. In conclusion, Peter is not claiming a salvation by works, but a salvation with works, a faith made manifest by works, as James wrote about. God is the one who exercises his sovereignty and salvation. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, and in conjunction with the knowledge of Jesus Christ given to us through faith, we will be a people characterized by a pursuit of godliness. Our entrance into the new heavens and the new earth is dependent on our calling and election. And the evidence of our calling and election is the fruit of godliness. The antidote to our lack of faith 
our doubts and fears is knowledge of God, a knowledge that produces godliness, right living. And God hasn't left us to wonder who he is and what he expects from us. God reveals and is revealing himself to his children. So Christian, pray for the desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and in doing so pursue godliness as a testimony and an act of praise that your calling and election into God's eternal kingdom is sure. Let's pray. Father, thank you that through your righteousness you have provided your children faith and are making us more like Jesus. Please continue to sanctify us through knowledge of you and by the power of your Holy Spirit cause us to pursue godliness for your glory. In the name of your Son and our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.